Welcome to Streaming Into the Void, where we discuss all the streaming news for the week ending March 25th, 2023. This week, everyone takes a breather. I'm Kim Hollis, pointing at the WrestleMania sign. I don't even know what that means. It's so funny. <laughs> With me are David Mumpower, author of Disney Demystified, streaming media analyst, and waiting to get a giant needle injected into his spine. <laughs> I don't want to go. And yet you really, really do. And the podcast is produced and edited by Raul Burial, who's getting ready for his perp walk next week. I think I'll wear the silver sequence number with the stilettos. Nice. Good choice. <laughs> In our deep dive this week, heads are rolling at Marvel as Victoria Alonso was fired by Disney. David, who is Victoria Alonso and why is this important? Okay, uh, <laughs> this is an awkward conversation all the way around. For years now, Marvel fans have used a simple phrase, which is, in Victoria, we trust, which is a strange thing to say about someone whose job title is a little dry. She was the president of physical post-production VFX and animation at Marvel Studios. However, she was also someone who got a lot of credit for the various casting grand slams that Marvel has hit over the years. Everyone trusts her, and she's frankly become one of the most powerful and respected executives in Hollywood. As a matter of fact, Marvel has what is known as the big three. They have Luis Desposito, who is currently the co-president of Marvel. They have Kevin Feige, who gets all of the credit. And then they have Victoria Alonso. And those people have basically been running Marvel pictures since before Iron Man. We're talking about more than 15 years as a trio where they have just had, you know, the Midas touch in Hollywood. They've created the greatest franchise ever. But... Hey, Kim, how did Quantumania go for Marvel? It's not as bad as like a DC movie, but still bad. That wasn't even me saying that, folks. Kim feels the same way about DC that I do. But yeah, that's that's the truth of it. As things stand right now, Ant-Man and the Wasp Quantumania has running box office total of less than $500 million, which is bad in and of itself. But then you think, these are Ant-Man movies? This is the worst Ant-Man movie in box office. It's also the one with Kang, who Marvel wants to be the next, you know, Thanos. So that film needs to be doing twice as well as it actually has. And what were all the criticisms about the film? Oh, yes, the special effects. As the person in charge of VFX at Marvel, it falls on Victoria Alonso. And it sounds like on Friday afternoon, <laughs> March 17th, they marched into her office, grabbed her stuff, and, you know, took her out right then and there, much to her surprise. And, oh, it looks like it's going to get acrimonious. So, yeah, Miss Alonso is responsible for post-production, and that largely involves doing the VFX for the Marvel movies. And there's been a lot of talk about the quality of the special effects in the Marvel projects, not only the movies, but also the TV shows for some time. Arguably, this is because they had to ramp up a lot of production for Disney+. Plus. I would say the culmination of that was probably She-Hulk, where people kept pointing at the special effects in She-Hulk and saying that they weren't very good at all. In fact, it was an inside joke 
joke in the last episode about how the VFX and She-Hulk weren't that good. Miss Alonzo was put in a rather untenable situation. She was told to ramp up VFX production and still make all the VFX look good, while at the same time, there were fewer and fewer VFX production houses available because everyone was putting VFX in their movies because everyone saw how successful projects like Marvel movies were. And then there were still the stories coming out of how graphics artists were being overworked and underpaid. It was not a pleasant situation to be in. And in the end, the House of Cards collapsed and the heads at Disney, let's call it what it is, Bob Iger, came down and said, we put you in this untenable situation where we told you to make more VFX and gave you less resources and you weren't able to deliver and now you're fired. That seems entirely unfair to this woman. Yeah, we don't actually know how much of this was her decision versus that of other people. The other thing about it, it's such a messy situation because Bob Iger was in charge, then Bob Chappick was in charge, then Bob Iger was in charge. So you don't know really where the buck stops on this, but we do know that Marvel released more titles in 2021 and 2022 than they ever had before. And not coincidentally, work fell behind. And we've actually commented on this. At one point, Marvel had to make a decision. Should they protect Black Panther Wakanda forever or should they protect Ant-Man 3 in terms of giving the best possible virtual effects because they just didn't have the resources to do both? In hindsight, maybe they should have delayed Quantumania and then that would have given them the opportunity to realize, oh, wait, the script isn't up to snuff. But, you know, that would have led reshoots and other stuff. And with Marvel in so much flux, they didn't feel comfortable doing that. So... Role, I think you're absolutely correct where it seems like a lot of mistakes were made by a lot of people and she is ultimately the one who's going to carry the brunt for all of them. Well, her and Bob Chappick. And indeed, Disney is apparently delaying a number of projects. A lot of shows that were slated for specific dates on Disney Plus have now simply been pushed to later, more nebulous dates. I think the second season of Loki is now scheduled for fall of 2023. You're absolutely correct. At one point, six or seven titles could have come out this year. At this point, what I'm hearing is four titles, and there's a chance that it only becomes three. So they are definitely taking a moment and and saying, wait a second, we've screwed this up pretty bad. We need to fix this. And there's certainly a larger conversation to be had here about whether too much content is ruining the brand. And I'm sure, David, you would point at Star Wars and say, yes, absolutely. There is right now. I mean, to be fair, that's not just me saying that. Disney has actually decided the five or six potential Star Wars projects they had in the offing that were going to be films, they've just held back on. And instead, they're just going to do Star Wars television until they find the Star Wars movie. And this is the kind of pragmatism and conservatism that, frankly, maybe they should have shown for a while now, but it's only their financial constraints that have really caused it. Something needed to tip the scales. In the end, I think this is for the best. I don't know that there's a Star Wars fan out there that is saying that we need more Star Wars shows. I think Star Wars shows and Marvel shows and all the other stuff on Disney Plus is better in small doses. So I think this is the right way to go. But in the meantime, people are paying Paying the price for this overproduction. And Victoria Alonso is one of the people who have paid that price. And ultimately, I'd say they were just doing what they were told to do. And so it's unfortunate. I will say I don't feel it's completely fair to absolve her, though, in that 
she was one of the big three at Marvel. Her words carried weight, and there also has been some behind-the-scenes stuff involving a different project she did. She produced a film called Argentina 1985, and it won an Academy Award nomination. And at this point, Disney kind of put its shields up to maximum and warned her that she needed to stop marketing that film because it wasn't a Disney film. It was an Amazon production by that point, or at least they were the ones claiming credit for it. And at the Oscars, she kind of specifically stood with that group with Argentina 1985 instead of Disney. So there, there are other things here. It's not as clear cut as she's just being thrown under the bus for this one thing. It could just be after 15 years, everyone was tired of each other. She's not going to be out of work for long. And I've joked that, you know, James Gunn, have her on the phone right now because she would be better at running DC than James Gunn ever could be. <laughs> In our rapid fire, Apple announced this week that they're going to spend $1 billion a year to produce movies for theatrical release. What are they up to? Apple's going to use these theatrical movies to promote their streaming service, but you can't deny that making movies for theatrical release can also be a profitable endeavor. This speaks to the grumblings from people who say that Netflix and other streamers should be releasing movies theatrically first and reaping those rewards before putting them to streaming. Netflix is going to argue that exclusivity of the movie on their streaming platform will drive subscriptions and not having the movie play in theaters will retain subscribers. As consumers know, they won't be able to watch these movies anywhere else. Apple isn't bound by any laws known to man and driving subscriber growth probably isn't paramount in their minds. Apple is all about selling their devices. If they think that putting movies in theaters will sell more iPhones, then they're going to put movies in theaters. Yeah, before the podcast, Raul was joking that a billion dollars basically means that, you know, they're going to make three movies. That's an exaggeration, obviously, but we are talking every week about how the cost of making a movie is going up exponentially. I mean, it's basically like the cost of eggs. So when we say these things, we don't want to get too far ahead of ourselves. What amuses me on this, if they were going to spend that much money, why didn't they just buy AMC or Regal, both of which had flashing fire cell signs for the body of the pandemic? But there is a correct logic. We've discussed it time and time again. The chief advantage of releasing a film in theaters isn't what people think it is. It's the fact that it is basically you're paying for your marketing and you're also subsidizing that cost with box office revenue. So one hand washes the other. It is just a prolonged marketing push more than anything else. Apple's going to play that game. Now, to be clear, I don't know how hyperbolic I was when I said that that's going to be three movies. Bloom Bloomberg speculates that the movies that Apple might release in theaters include the Martin Scorsese Killers of the Flower Moon starring Leonardo DiCaprio, the Matthew Vaughn spy thriller Argyle, and Ridley Scott's epic Napoleon. Tell me that alone, those three movies alone do not add up to a billion dollars in production and marketing. Well, the funny thing for me is, you know, like the Napoleon one, that's just a headline waiting to write itself. Oh, my God, box office disaster. So, you know, 
it doesn't even matter. There's also the, would people want to see this? And that's going to be a new test. But, you know, the thing about Apple is, who cares? They've got the money to burn. They can do what they want. They're going to test this. And if this is what they think makes sense in the marketplace right now, I'm not going to disagree with them. I'm sure their data suggests that. And their data is probably more informed than my outside opinion. And that's saying someone who's a pretty good box office analyst. If yeah. they think this is the right time for this, more power to them. Yeah, all of this speaks to Apple's hegemony here. Like David said, if anybody else wanted to release movies theatrically, they would have gone out and bought themselves a studio like Amazon did when they bought MGM. Amazon comes out and they say they're going to spend a billion dollars releasing movies theatrically. It's like, yeah, that's probably how much MGM used to spend every year releasing movies. They're not reinventing anything by doing that. They're simply continuing what MGM has been doing all along. Apple didn't go out and buy a studio. They showed up with a bag full of money, dropped a billion dollars on the table and said, make it happen. Apple's going to release movies theatrically and they don't need anybody's help to do it. And in some licensing nightmare news, Arrested Development, which was set to leave Netflix earlier this month, has just had its streaming rights picked up by Netflix. Raul, what's going on here? Arrested Development is one of those shows that Netflix doesn't own. It was originally produced by 20th Century Fox and ended up being owned by Disney when Disney bought the studio. The last licensing package for Arrested Development, which was streaming on Netflix, was set to expire at the end of February. The expectation was that Disney would move the show to Hulu to supplement their own streaming catalog. Already, the first three seasons of that show are streaming on Hulu, with the subsequent two seasons, which were co-produced with Netflix, were streaming exclusively on Netflix. Under the new deal, all five seasons will now stream exclusively on Netflix and Arrested Development will be leaving Hulu instead. Yeah, so we've talked about this. We we winced, I mean, literally in my case, when Iger said he was going to start reevaluating whether Disney needed to maintain exclusivity on its content because that is how licensing nightmares begin. But it certainly appears that he has figured out a way to monetize the catalog that won't hurt Disney significantly. If it did, they would have kept the rights to Arrested Development or they would have co-released the show the way that we've seen several times with other products. Instead, Disney was like, you know what? Our people don't seem to watch Arrested Development the way that your people do. So why don't you guys go ahead and pay us for it? I I think that Disney should keep all Disney content and then, you know, take a smaller check to let other people air it too personally. But again, I'm not Bob Iger. He knows the situation better than I do. So we are seeing some challenges to some assertions we've been making the past couple of years. And the people who have the most data seem to disagree with us on these points. We'll see who's right over time. This might speak to whether Disney actually wants eyeballs on Hulu or not. As weird as that sounds, Comcast has complained in the past that Disney is undermining the reach of Hulu. This happens certainly when Disney opted to launch Star, a streaming tile on Disney Plus rather than launching Hulu internationally. Comcast has a stake in Hulu and it's in their interests for Hulu to be successful, especially when the time comes for Disney and Comcast to negotiate who actually ends up owning the Hulu streaming service. We are hearing now about movies and TV shows that Disney is going to be putting out on both Hulu and Disney Plus concurrently. So you wonder, is Disney trying to, in some limited way, shape or form, reduce the appeal of Hulu as they try to draw subscribers away from that streaming service and over to Disney Plus instead in order for them to say, 
say, look, Hulu isn't as valuable as you thought, Comcast. We're not going to give you as much money as uh, you think you uh, deserve for that stake in the streaming service. Or is something different happening here? So you think Disney is having Netflix pay them to devalue Hulu when it goes to Comcast. Is that the trail of breadcrumbs you're leaving here? All of that adds up to Disney making more money. So, yes. Boy, he is really playing the long game if that is the strategy. (laughs) All right. So, unfortunately, Nielsen didn't provide streaming ratings this week. So, we gave Tim the week off. And that would be a problem, except for the fact that we have another expert box office analyst who's been cited in any number of publications over the years. Tim Hollis, how is John Wick 4 doing? My modest box office expert friend. I'm excited to see that John Wick Chapter 4 had a Friday total, including Thursday previews, of $29.4 million, which is... Holy cow, a, wow. It's going to end up with total, right? <laughs> yeah, no, 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 no. That's Friday. So I'd say, what, 75 million or so for the weekend? We are starting to put the pandemic in our rearview mirror, aren't we? <laughs> yes. There was a lot of excitement for John Wick Chapter 4, and it has great reviews, better reviews than Chapter 3 and Chapter 2 and Chapter 1. Each movie has gotten successively better reviews, and audiences are absolutely here for this. Let's be honest. John Wick 4 has an A cinema score, the franchise is revered, and the new film has the best usage of mantra possible. It's so good that it would make Amelie a little jealous. It's spectacular. I like the John Wick world very much. This movie does plenty to keep the world growing and developing and leaves a little bit of mystery at the end. And yeah, I think we're definitely going to be excited about what comes next with both the continent and potentially chapter five. So we'll probably discuss this more when Tim returns next week. But the other thing I'm noticing here is how everyone has gotten smarter about filmmaking lately. We talked about this with Creed 3, where they're talking about now a Creed universe, which I would argue is just a Rocky universe. That's the whole point about Creed. It's the one orbiting Rocky, not the other way around. But with John Wick, they've now introduced enough characters that they can start doing sides stories with other, you know, assassins and individuals from this world who aren't John Wick, don't have the Baba Yaga gene, but still can do some really cool stuff. And I am excited for that. And I think it's clever. And I think to a certain extent, it also takes the pressure off Keanu Reeves. And while Kim did mention the upcoming series, The Continental, as well as a potential John Wick Chapter 5, let's not forget Anna de Armas starring in Ballerina coming up later this year. Exactly. That's the sort of thing I'm referencing here where they have built out this world. It is not just John Wick anymore. It is the continental universe and we need to start thinking of it in those terms. In our green lights and cancellations this week, Netflix has greenlit the serial killer drama You for a fifth and final season. I know that had to have been a really hard decision for Netflix. They really hate to let go of that money. But at the same time, you is just a smashing success. I guess five is the right number for super successful series at Netflix, because that's also what Stranger Things and Cobra Kai are getting. It'd be a miracle for any series on Netflix to get six seasons at this point. Seems like. 
I'm just amused. I keep thinking that for season four, Penn Badgley said, hey, I'd like to not do sex scenes anymore. So I'm wondering if for season five, he says he'd like to not do murders anymore. (laughs) And HBO Max isn't entirely done with original content as they'll be producing a limited series based on the Heidi Fleiss scandal. Well, it's true crime. But on the other hand, nobody's getting murdered this time. I actually think limited series might be David Zaslav's favorite words. <laughs> yeah. Okay, we close out this episode with what's been keeping us busy. And David and I did see John Wick Chapter 4 on opening night, Thursday night, with a very enthusiastic crowd. And as mentioned before, the series has built a tremendous world and one that they're going to expand into different series and other places. And I am continuously lost in admiration for what they've done. We have a friend of the podcast who said that the movie stretched reality. And to that, I was, well, when has this ever been about reality? It's its own alternate world where people go around with guns and where the rich are in charge. And that's, I guess, not so fictional, but it's definitely developed its own alternate universe. And it's amazing. And the cast is terrific this time around. If you've liked the first three John Wicks, you will love this John Wick. Raul, how about you? I think I've mentioned Poker Face on Peacock before, but I'd like to bring it up again now that I've uh, wrapped up the first season. This is the show starring Natasha Leone as a woman who can recognize when people are telling the truth or lying. It is, of course, the Ryan Johnson directed and written series for Peacock, and it uh, premiered hot on the heels of Glass Onion on Netflix. So it was coming in hot. It was going to be very successful and, in fact, has gotten a lot of buzz and, in fact, Uh, has received a lot of critical praise as well. The first season, and there is going to be more, the first season was great. I really enjoyed it. I really like that because presumably Ryan Johnson is involved, he can bring in all of these celebrities. And so every episode has recognizable faces, A-list actors and actresses, some of which looking a little bit more worse for wear than you'd expect. You would imagine that with an episode that stars Nick Nolte in it. But there's some cameos I don't want to mention, including one in in the last episode of an actor that I really like. I'm not going to spoil it, but he's only in it for a couple of minutes and that's unfortunate, but he's great and it was good to see him. I, I will mention that the before last episode had Joseph Gordon-Levitt in it. Joseph Gordon-Levitt has been in every Ryan Johnson project he's ever done, including, yes, the Star Wars movie. That episode suffered from... I guess, attempts at doing special effects that did not look very good. They were trying to make it uh, look like it was snowing in the Colorado Rockies, and the whole thing was presumably filmed in a uh, soundstage. But where it fell short on special effects, it excelled in storytelling and acting. Joseph Gordon-Levitt was great in that episode. What I struggle with with Poker Face is that a lot of it is played for humor, and when people are getting murdered all the time, it It's really hard to laugh. There are some very sad and tragic murders where Natasha Leone's character, Charlie, either 
inadvertently or intentionally solves the murder or brings police attention to the right perpetrator. She almost stumbles through every crime, and that is part of the charm of the episode. But the fact that she is literally stumbling in some cases through crimes does make it somewhat unfortunate. It was good enough that I definitely want to see where we go the next season. They did wrap up the first season's storyline very well, while also tying it into what's going to be happening in the next season. So I'm excited to see where Ryan Johnson and Natasha Leon take it with Poker Face Season 2. And if you haven't watched it yet, I do highly recommend it. Okay, David, how about you? Yeah, so obviously we loved John Wick 4. I think upon first blush, I probably like the second and third ones a little bit better, but that is a splitting of hairs for me because I think all three are exceptional. It's kind of in a strange way how I feel about the Mission Impossible films. It is a mood thing by the day, and I'm dead serious. There is a thing with stairs that if I were doing it, I would have done exactly the same thing the same way, the lead up, the surprise, and then everything that happens after that, just phenomenal. There are big ideas throughout this film. And also it's done by someone who I'm 100% certain is a huge fan of Resident Evil 4. If I have a nephew listening right now, his face is aglow with this. They do a very good job of giving John Wick some weapons that you could see him buying from someone who said, stranger, stranger. They're awesome. And then we also watched the pilot for The Night Agent. And I'm going to be honest with you. I liked it so much. I can fully see myself watching the rest of it in the next 48 hours. I don't know if we'll do that or not, but I loved it. And Kim, I have to ask you about The Night Agent. Do you know where you have seen the lead actor from The Night Agent before? Mm -mm. I have no idea. It's one of the Super 8 kids all grown up. Oh, wow. I would not have come up with that. Yep. So it's just fascinating how clever that story is where a guy works in a job where the phone never rings. And then what do you do if it rings and the parts they've set up? I'm afraid that Kim and I have anticipated a couple of the twists well ahead of time. If so, they have telegraphed them. And if I'm wrong, they've done a good job of setting up red airings. So we'll see how that goes. But highly recommend the first episode. And I have a feeling this is going to be right in my wheelhouse. Thank you for listening to Streaming Into the Void. Please consider subscribing via Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And we welcome your feedback. Remember that we're on social media at Streaming Void and online at StreamingVoid.com. If you like what you're hearing, please consider becoming a subscriber on Patreon at Patreon.com slash Streaming Void. Be sure to watch for us again next week. 